The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome, welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on this, the 30th day of April 2023. Tomorrow, May 1st already. Unbelievable. Well, our engineer Brian Graves is with us as always right across the way. Happy to welcome you aboard tonight. So glad you can be with us. We've got a great show lined up for you tonight as always. Leading off, we'll speak with the former Mets catcher and Toronto Blue Jays skipper. He's got a new book out that we'll talk about. John Gibbons will join us. Next, we'll welcome in the former pitcher for the Mets, uh, memories of Generation K and what might have been Bill Pulsifer will be our guest, so sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy the show tonight. We've got some great people, some great sports talk up ahead for you. Social media, I'd like to talk to you about that, if I may. We are on Facebook. You can get there. Uh, give us a look. Give us a like. Show information, uh, sports information, so much more. So check that out. Also, we're on LinkedIn. And we're on Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk. You can follow me on Twitter at B Donahue, WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry, because all shows can be heard on our website at www.am1240wgbb.com. Okay, our first guest, former catcher in the bigs, mainly is a member of the 1986 world champion New York Mets. Uh, also had a great run uh, as manager of the Toronto Blue Jays. He's got a new book out titled Gibby, Tales of a Baseball Lifer. He's also got a great podcast that we'll speak to him about called The Gibby Show. Look for that wherever you listen to your podcast. I'd like to welcome in tonight John Gibbons. John, good evening. Bill, how are you, man? I we're, appreciate you having me on. We're doing great. We're doing great. Hope you're doing the same down there in Texas. Hot Texas. There Hot you go. You're starting to heat up. Oh, man. Yeah, I bet. Okay. Now, you, you were born in Great Falls, raised down in San Antonio. Uh, as a kid, who were your sports heroes and your favorite teams? Well, you know, Bill, uh, as a kid, my favorite football team, I'll start there, was the Minnesota Vikings because my, my father was in the U.S. Air Force and he was stationed down in Puerto Rico mm-hmm. when, I, when I was young. And our next-door neighbor... Uh, was Mick Tinglehoff's sister, so ah. Mick would come down there, you know, during during the off season, a couple of years that we lived there, and so I got a chance to meet him. So he's my hero, you know. Of course, he won the Hall of Fame, and uh, so I, I just started, you know, that that be, that became my team, the Minnesota Vikings, and, and my mom and dad are both born and raised in Boston, so I was kind of a Red Sox fan, but I always something I always loved the Cincinnati Reds because of Johnny Bench. Uh, yeah, so those those were kind of my three teams right there. Not bad choices, John. Not bad at all. Now, uh, selected by the Mets, twenty fourth overall pick in the nineteen eighty draft. Uh, you moved through the Mets system. You were considered to be the top catching prospect, and uh, what derailed you was a collision with Joe LaFay. Uh, landed you on the disabled list. 
Well, you know, that derailed me for, uh, well, but the, I can't, went to spring training in 1984, you know, Davey Johnson, he became the manager and they, were, they had all these young, good young players coming along. They threw the catching job up for grabs and it was me, Ron Hodges, Ron Reynolds, Junior Ortiz, and Mike Fitzgerald, right? Right. And, uh, so I went to spring training, had the best spring, so they, they told me I was, I was, I was their number one catcher. Just a couple of days before we broke camp, I got in a collision at home plate. Cheap shot from Joe LaFay. But you know, that, uh, that didn't derail me. That slowed me down. Uh, and then, you know, I eventually came back. They didn't have, they didn't send you out on rehab assignments to play some games back then, you know, so you know, I'd stay with the team for two or three weeks and practiced and came back and wasn't, forgot I had a hit, you know. Uh, I said, this big league is tough. So eventually, you know, lost my confidence. They, they, uh, you know, they went out and traded for Gary Carter, which they had to do that offseason to put him over the top. So that's what derailed me. It, you know, yeah. it had nothing to do with that injury there. It, uh, that just, all that did was delay something. Who knows? I might have, without it, might have had a great start and things might have been different, but, uh, I doubt it. Yeah, they had to go out and get Gary Carter. That ruined everything, right, John? <laughs> They had, well, you know, he's the best catcher in the game at the time. Yeah. You know, okay, that's all. So that's, yeah. Uh, that's a no, that's a no brainer, you know? Yeah. So, so you served as the bullpen catcher in 86. Yeah. What, what happened in, in, uh, I think it was August 1st, I think it was the day. Yeah. Carter was playing first base in a game and he dove for a ball and he, he uh, broke his thumb, right? So they called me up from AAA and then so me and Ed Hearn, you know, caught the, caught the games and then I stayed with the team through, you know, when, when Gary came back and I think it was middle of September, beginning of September. Anyway, so then we get into the postseason and I wasn't on the active roster, but I stayed with the team. There was like three of us, um, Randy Neiman and, uh, Rick Anderson and we, and I just got in the bullpen, you know, and so that was kind of, that was kind of my ticket. I was, uh, you know, I tell these guys that they want to become managers. I said, the job you need is a bullpen catcher, man. That's, yeah. That's, that's the key. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, well, you were an instructor for a while in the med system. Uh, you went into managing. What, what made you decide that you wanted to get into managing, John? Did you have somebody, uh, before that who sort of, uh, instilled that in you? How did, how did that work out? Well, you know, got the, but I got to the point in my career where I was, uh, you know, the end was near. Uh, you know, AAA catchers that have some big league experience can always, can always find a job, right? Mm-hmm. But I was, I was ready to start a family. I was married and I was going nowhere and I, and I felt like I was, I was too smart to just hang around and, and, uh, you know, just, just rotting them in the minor leagues, you know. So, but, but then sure enough, but I didn't know what I was going to do either though, you know, but I always thought coaching might be my thing, whether it be high school, college or pros, right? So anyway, the Mets called at the end of my my uh, my final year playing, and uh, the, the roving catching job was uh, was open because Vern Hoshai was retiring. He used to be my catching guy, right? And so I jumped I jumped on it, you know, with the thought, well, this is uh, uh, it gets me into coaching. Who knows where it might end up? So so I rode for a couple years, and then they then they made some cutbacks because it was a lockout or uh, whatever. There was something going on. And so they were taking rovers off the road, and they, they made me a manager, which is, was my desire. I told them, I said, I, you know, I want to be with the team full time. And that's kind of how it all started, you know. And then I climbed through the system. He got to AAA, spent three years in, hit a little roadblock there, and then finally it was time. You know, I needed I needed a change of scenery for my family's sake, you know. And and, uh, and I end up somehow end up in Toronto. <laughs> yeah, JP, who who was in the Mets system, people may not know that, uh, brought you over. 
to Toronto, and and the rest, like they say, is history. Yeah, yeah. JP actually was a roommate of mine. Mm-hmm. Bill down at A Ball, right? We became pretty good friends, and you know, both our families from were from Boston, you know, so we had that connection. Yeah, yeah. And so what happened is he he went out. He was uh, Billy Bean's right hand man. Another met, you know, uh, out there in Oakland, and when I when I the Mets wanted me to go back for a fourth year in AAA. In 2002, I told him, no, nah, I need to, I need to make a change, you know, because well, Valentine was the manager in the big leagues and they were going through a, at least one coach a year change, right? And, and normally your AAA manager slides in there if he's been there a while or if they like him. True. But I couldn't get one of those jobs, you know, I never really hit it off with Valentine, you know? Yeah. And so, so, but I, but I said, you know what, you know, that's, I'm going to, for my family's sake, I'm going to try to get a job closer to home or may, or it's time to grow up and find something, right? So, so I told the Mets I wasn't going back. You know, I told Jim Duquette he was kind of my boss. Steve Phelps was the GM. But I always, Billy Bean had always told me, hey, you, you want to come out here? I'd love to hire you out here in Oakland. But Oakland, you know, they didn't have any excess money to spend to bring in extra people. And they were on top of the world at that time. You know, they, they you know, they were talking baseball. And, uh, so there was really no spot. So I, so I see I had, and I didn't check with Billy beforehand before telling the Mets I'm out. So that, I learned a lesson to learn there. So anyway, to try to quicken this up, JP was Bean's right hand man. So Bill, uh, so JP's trying to help me find a job, right? I told the Mets I'm not coming back. Mm-hmm. JP's trying to help me find a job. So one day I called Bean on the phone. He said, "Let me call you back." JP's got a press conference. And I said, well, "What the heck?" Anyway, turns out that he gets the Toronto GM job out of nowhere. I think Paul D. Podesta might have been the guy they were going to hire, and then he, something happened, and then JP came in there out of nowhere. And sure enough, he brought me over there. You know, he was he was helping me look for a job anyway. So I said, well, at least I got something, right? Yeah. That's kind of how it all started. You know, it, it and it goes back to our roots. You know, we were old, we were old roommates, and uh, so he knew me. And uh, you know that uh, that's the way it works sometimes. Yeah, uh, the, things happen, as they say. Uh, John Gibbons with us tonight on the program. So that was your first stint in Toronto, and you did a good job. Yeah, I thought you know I thought it went did okay. You know, we yeah. were kind of uh, you know we were you know we always we were always optimistic, but the reality said we were, our goal was to be a five hundred team. You know that the you know not, not crying, but the payroll was limited even with with the wealthy owner, and and that was back you know when the Red Sox and the Yankees were you know they'd run away with it every year by June anyway. You know, um, yeah, and so and so. Uh, so you know we, we were basically 500 at the time I was there, and then uh, but you know some people expected more than you know JP was forced to fire me, which is fine. You know that's part of the gig. He gave me an opportunity I, that I never thought I would get. That uh, and then sure enough, then uh, from there I go I'm Kansas City Royals called you know, my friend over there Trey Hillman was manager, uh, and I became the bench coach. And then when he got fired, Ned Yost came over, and, and Ned kept me around for another year and a half. And so I, so I, I did that, and then I moved on to. Uh, they made some changes because they were they were bringing Chino Cudahia, who was Bobby Cox's bench coach. When Bobby re- re- retired, and you know he brought he was an old Dayton Moore, who everybody in Kansas City was all Atlanta Brave guys, so they mm-hmm. brought some guys over. So I finally got a, a job at San Antonio, Texas, with the Padres Double A uh, Texas League team. First time I've been home in a long, long time. That's what I did. And the next thing you know, Alex Anthopoulos calls. For a second go round, I thought it was Billy Martin or something without the wins. <laughs> yeah, 
Uh, you tied the the, the uh, Blue Jays single season record for ejections, John. Uh, that was held by the great Hall of Famer Bobby Cox. Now, you got to do something special to get tossed that many times. How, how, to what do you attribute that? Let us know. I mean, okay. <laughs> Bill, there could have been a lot more, but you know, then they started the, the uh, replays. You know? Yeah, that, that, that took away took away a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, well, you know, I've, I've been accused of being an angry young man. <laughs> was now I'm an angry old man. But uh, you know, one thing I learned, Bill, in, in the, as a young player, and then when I got into coaching or whatever it is, and it's just the right thing. It, it's if you want if you want your players to fight for you, you better fight for them, right? Right. And and, and that was I, I I live by that because you know I've been there before and I played for managers that wouldn't fight for you and you see other guys on the other team fighting for the players it's a, that's important you know you want you want your manager and your coaches to have your back and uh, and we had some I mean, we had some big time players on our team but we had some whiners guys that complained more than anybody you know like Donaldson uh, Batista you know uh, it turns around most of the time they were right because they had both of them were very uh, had a, a great discipline at the plate. But the umpires got tired of it, so they'd stick it to them, you know? Yeah. So my job was to, you know, fight for those guys uh, because they were right most of the time. I remember, uh, John, that one incident, we'll call it an incident, um, when Joey Batista gets punched by uh, Rugi Odor, and it, it was a solid, a solid hit. Now, you, I think you were suspended during that during that brawl, but that, that was a big one. Well, yeah. Well, you know, you know what happened because in the fifteen, you know, we had the bat flip. We 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 came back. We're down two games, nothing, and won three straight to to move on in the two thousand fifteen uh, playoffs, right? And that was when you know Batista the bat flip, famous bat. Yeah. Flip. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the Texas, yeah, the Texas Rangers were all up in arms about it. And the problem was that nobody celebrated home runs more than the Texas Rangers did. That's kind of what's kind of ironic. But anyway, so we go into two thousand and sixteen. We know. Batista knows something's going to happen. We all figure because it was they made such a big deal out of out of it. So we had a ten game stretch. We playing them seven of them, right? We yeah. Played, played them uh, four at home, and then we we uh, somebody else in between. Then we played them three in Texas. And so the first four games they don't do anything, right? And then of course then we uh, we go down to Texas after that, and nothing happens till the final inning, like the, the final final at bat but i had been ejected earlier in the game so i was in, in inside watching the game on tv right yeah and uh sure enough they they grill him so hosey hosey told me you know i i said they're gonna probably get you this is before the season even started he goes that's fine i'll just take my base and whatever uh you know so he gets off first base and it was perfect it was just like the old the old time days where uh, then the guy rolls a ground ball right and really the guy whenever a guy would get drilled the middle infielders of the other team would think, oh, crap, man, because if there's a ground ball, you're going to clean my clock. But back then, you used to be able to run guys over, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So sure enough, so Billy, they, he rolls a ground ball. Batista goes in there. He didn't get him. He went in there hard, but he didn't, he didn't get him. And he, and he comes up, and, and they shoved. And then Odor uh, punched him. You know, that, I think we shocked everybody. You never see that in baseball. You know, there's never No, there's always a lot of dancing around, but you never see anybody punching. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what I think shocked everybody, and uh, yeah, everybody like they'll sit at home play, they get drilled, and then they'll they'll sit there and they'll pop, they'll they'll jaw jaw with the pitcher and the catcher and all that, and they wait they wait till the bench is empty, and then they then they make their move when everybody's there to grab them, to hold them back, yeah, yeah, 
It's so funny. But so anyway, I'm sitting in the in that final game down there in Texas, watching the game on TV, and, and uh, they drill him. So then the big brawl started. And the third, the the rule in baseball is if you've been ejected from the game, you know you can't go back on the field. Right. Now, I, I understand that for players, man. But that's the same rule applies. Figure this to coaches and managers. I mean, you got to be kidding me. You figure you want your manager and coaches out there, you know, uh, cleaning up the mess, right? Right. So anyway, so I, so I get a I get a uh, a memo the next day from uh, Commissioner Manford. And he said, you know, you're, you're suspended, uh, what was it, three, three games. And I got fined the same amount Rudan O'Dor got fined. I didn't even throw a punch. Wow. And, yeah. And, and, and what happened is, because the year before I had been ejected and I came back on the field in a similar circumstance, right? So they said, well, so anyway, so I called Joe Torrey, right? You know, Joe was in charge of discipline. Uh huh. Well, no, for, my first call was to, uh, Jimmy Leland. Uh, you know, he had retired and we were, we were pretty good buddies. And I said, Jimmy. I could find like four grand in the, I said, I need to throw a punch. He goes, hey, he thought that was very excessive too. So he, he said, I'm going to New York tomorrow for some rules meetings or something like that. So he said, let, let me see what I can do. So anyway, I'd call Tory and kind of pleaded my case and what have you. And, uh, sure enough, I'm sitting at my desk the next day and I get a phone call. It's, it's Tory on the line. He said, all right, we're going to, we're going to cut the fine in half. I said, oh, so I'm half guilty. I go, that's great. Well, all right, whatever. <laughs> So, so anyway, he said, hold on a minute. He puts me on speakerphone and it, Jimmy Leland's in the background laughing, you know, and, and uh, so Jimmy came through for me. At least, at least he saved me a little money, but yeah, uh, yeah, that was kind of, that was kind of, you know, how all that happened. It was, but another stupid rule, you know, we, we, we keep, uh, they keep trying to change the game so much, but how, tell me how stupid it is. If a manager's been ejected, he can't go back on the field to, uh, the managers aren't out there fighting. We're, we're sitting there trying to break things up, you know, and it's, it's like, there's like no common sense in baseball, man. You know, when uh, you see something. No, not do. not anymore. No, the the way the the rules have changed, the the, the umpires are, are like the centerpiece now between the replays yeah. and and the uh, the the pitch clock, calling violations on hitters and pitchers, and these guys are uh, are making themselves the stars. Like uh, they they threw out Scherzer uh, two weeks ago for the rosin and the sweat. And uh, they're making it all about themselves. Yeah, I, you know, it's like, it's, it, it, you know, and, and then, of course, you got the commissioner, he's trying, his legacy, I don't know what he wants his legacy to be, but, you know, overhaul the game or something, you know. But, you know, when when, change, when there's good change, let's do it, I'm all for it. But don't change things just for the sake of change, you know. No. I don't think that's always good, but, uh, yeah, that's hey, that's what it is. Well, well, speaking of the replay, John, John Gibbons with us tonight on the program. You had a lot of success uh, ch- with, with challenges. Uh, to what do you attribute that? Oh, heck, you know, you know what? The, the, the key to it, uh, the replay thing is is who who you have up up uh, in the clubhouse. Right? Yeah, the guy up in the up in the box. Yeah. Yeah. You, because you know the guys in the dugout. I mean, we we're not making a call. We 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 think we know what we see, but he, you know, you get that. I don't know how how much time they give you now to review it before you have to make a decision. But those are the guys that are under the gun, you know. Uh, uh, and we, when you get when when you have one that's good, you know, they make all the difference in the world. So, but you know, you can't you can't stick. To, the good thing is you can't give the credit to the manager. But you also can't blame him either. Be <laughs> yeah. But that goes to the guy up upstairs. 
Yeah, the the Mets had a good one because uh, Buck had a good season with that last year. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, the guy up in the box was just tremendous. And uh, hey, I'll tell you one thing though, Bill. We'll sit there. We'll some of those. Uh, you sit there and they, you know, they show it on the, uh, you know, the big board out there. Right. The yeah. Stadium. And you're going. They have to overturn this, and there's no way they can. I mean, it's like something's just dead obvious up there. And they'll come back and they'll say the play stands. You're going. What? what are they looking at? Yeah, you know, I know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you talk about ejections. I said a couple of times, a couple of umpires, I, I would ask them, who the heck's up there reviewing these plays up there, man? Because they're trying to protect some, one of you guys down here on the field, man. It's the umpires, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I had a little fun with it. Oh, you know? man. Well, let's take a look at the book here. The book uh, is called Gibby, Tales of a Baseball Lifer, and uh, just just a great read, folks. Josh Donaldson uh, writes the foreword to this book. Now, you, you had some con- uh, controversy with, with uh, Josh at one time, didn't you, where he threw the bat and you didn't like it or something like that? Oh, yeah. Well, that's my boy, man. You know what? Uh, you know, I... You know, Josh is like that racehorse, man. You know, he's, he's high strung, one of the great players in the game. He's getting older now. Uh, but the, we just hit it off right away. But he, you know, he had, he, he butted some heads when he was out there in, in, uh, Oakland and then we picked him up and I'd seen him play and I love the way he played, but, I, but I also knew he was a handful, right? Very, yeah. you know, emotional player and that kind of thing. That's all right. You know, I, I, we hit it off pretty good. But we, we had our battles, there's no doubt. But that, that one play you're talking about for that one day, it was in Yankee Stadium, and he was uh, we were facing Sabathia. And I had told him before that the, uh, he tells a different story. But I asked him early that morning, I said, hey, I'll give you a day off. He goes, no, I'm good. I said, well, okay, I'll DH you, get you off your feet. He said, fine, right? So anyway, his, his story is he, he was dying and needed a day off. So anyway. Uh, he goes and Sebastian punches him out his first at bat, you know, made him look bad. And he's walking back to Doug. You can just see he's got that look, you know. And I used to stand right next to the stairs, you know, by the on deck circle. So right. anyway, so he goes up next to, next to bat, CC sticks it to him again, man. So then he's, he's walking off and he's just, he's just, he's just fuming, right? So he takes his bat and hits it against this, this pole that I'm leaning up against, right? As he walks by, as he's going down the stairs. He goes to the batter rack. So I said, this ain't, you know, I just reacted. This ain't going to work. So I went down there and we jawed a little bit. And then Tulowitzki broke it up. Tulo was always the peacemaker, man. He was the, <laughs> uh, you know, the big, strong voice of reason. So anyway, that was that. And then we had a little fun with it after the game. But, you know, no hard feelings. But, you know, we keep in touch, you know, Josh and I. And, uh, but he, he's a, you know, he, he's, he's a lightning rod too. But, you know, he's, uh, Guy plays to win, man. That's all that counts. Yeah, Josh said that uh, you want to just get a better smell of the cologne that that he had on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he, yeah. Was wearing, he said he was wearing some like fancy Tom Ford, like fancy cologne. I told him, you don't buy, you don't wear that fancy stuff, man. You shop at Walmart, dude. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, now, looking at the book, you got a picture of Daryl Strawberry in there, and he was your roommate in the instructional league. You said. Yeah, you know, we both got drafted in 80. Right. Daryl and Bean in the first round. Mm-hmm. So, and Daryl and I both went off to Kingsport to play. And, you know, at, at the end of the year, you had the, you know, they really had the instructional league of all the young players. So we, we both go down to Florida and we knew each other from Kingsport. And, uh, so, so we, we were rooming down, out on Madeira Beach there. And he went home. Somebody in his family passed away. Something happened, right? He, he left like a month early. 
it never came back, you know. But yeah, but we roomed together, and then uh, you know we got to know each other a little bit there in Kingsport, and then you know, uh, you know, of course, Daryl was on the fast track. Right. I tell you what, though, you know, in uh, what year was it? Might have been at the end of fifteen or. Uh, a buddy of mine called. You know, I lived down here in San Antonio, Texas, and he says uh, I was on my way home. The season was over. He goes, "Hey, you, Strawberry's coming to uh, preach at, at this church I go to, right?" And uh, he said, "You want to go? Should we, should we go listen to him?" I said, "Yeah, I had seen Daryl in a while. And, you know, of course, I knew his, uh, you know, everything that's happened to him. So, mm-hmm. I th- so." So I went, I went over and he, 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 Billy, he gave the, one of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life, man. It was, it was incredible, right? Yeah, he's, I got he's to doing well. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? So I got to, but the nice part is I got to visit with him a little bit off to the side and say hi. And, uh, you know, cause I was always a big fan of Daryl, you know, and he was always good to me. And, uh, but it's, it's sad. It's, you know, it's, it's sad what, what happened to him and Doc, you know, because, you know, they both should have been Hall of Famers. That's right. Yeah. And every Met I talk to says the same thing. I've, I've had, uh, Daryl on the stro- on the show before and, uh, he, he's really turned things around. He's, he's got a great yeah. life now. Him and his wife with, with, uh, with his work w- with, uh, his church and the, the thing's just going great. But, uh, I, w- I was, uh, happy to see that, that you guys were roommates together. I want to talk about another photo in the book here. You, you with the great communicator. Ronald Reagan at the at the White House. Ah, and, uh, what a great hey, what a great hey, shot that is. <laughs> hey, no, hey, Billy, don't ask me how I got so close to him in there. You know, because that was <laughs> we went to the White House. It was it's like the old uh, I was photobombing, man. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh man. Hey, you know what's interesting? I, yeah, I don't know how I got in such a good spot there, but anyway, that that was the day I think they broke the I I, I ran Contra scandal. Uh, they, that broke that day. We were, we happened to be in there. It was that day or the next, whatever. Oh, gee. It's a, it, so you could, you know, it was almost, you, you could almost sense that something was seemed like a little bit tense there or something, right? But then they came out with that. But, um, you yeah, know, something along those lines. But yeah, you know, I was always, you know, I'm being, I'm a conservative Republican down here. And, and, uh, you know, of course I, I love Reagan. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, uh-huh. you know, I got to meet, uh, you know, of course the elder bush there and then, uh, you got to miss, meet George Jr. down here at W. You know when uh right yeah pic- Texas picture with George W. in the book too right. Oh yeah man hey, hey yeah I don't mess around man I hang out with the big boys. Really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. What was right. your what was your favorite thing about writing the book, John? You know you know it's funny. Um, I had no intention of writing one. Uh, my my last my last day in 2018. I they you know we. We worked it out with the club. I wasn't coming back. Uh, and I, you know, I had a year left of my contract, but you know, it was enough enough. They deserved, they need, they needed their own guy because they inherited me, right? So it, when I was leaving that final game, that final, uh, the homestand in Toronto, I've become pretty good friends with most of the media in Toronto, uh, over the years. And like three or four of them said to me, you know, uh, when, when I was leaving that day, say, hey, listen, if you ever write a book, I want to write it. And I said, well, are you kidding me? Come on. It never even <laughs> entered my mind. I said, and I even said a couple of them. I said, yeah, I wouldn't even read it, man. No chance. And whatever. <laughs> but thank you. Whatever. And then, you know, and then, then a couple of years later, another guy, this old friend of mine, he, uh, he had written a book. His name's John Rizzi in New Yorker. He, uh, he'd been in pro wrestling. He'd been in country music in Nashville. And he was, he was roommates with JP and myself down in Shelby, North Carolina. He was working for the A-ball team, right? Uh-huh. So anyway, but, but he had written a book with this publishing company in Canada and he knew some guy and he, 
they they you made some connections in the, in the they came to me and said you want to write a book and at the time I wasn't doing much I said what what the heck why not give it a try right sure so kind of how that all that came about it wasn't like gosh I can't wait to write a book I got a great story to tell or I you know I'm I'm dying to whatever you know it just but then it just happened and it's doing okay I think. Definitely, yeah. Like as I told the folks, it's a good read. How about the podcast? How did you get started with that? You're doing great with that as well. Well, yeah, you know, it's kind of the same way. The guys, you know, we, we're putting the book together. I said, when we try to get a podcast, because heck, everybody does a podcast now, right? Oh, yeah. Brett like, Boone's got a great one, I know. Yeah, you know, so we, so we, we figure we'll give that a try. It, ours, is, ours is mainly focuses on, uh, you know the Blue Jays up there because that's you know that's where I made my name and, and uh, uh, we, we we get a lot of the, the the current players we've had some past players this week we got Joe West man Country Joe's coming on there we're gonna reminisce I don't want to be good yeah yeah you know he's a great storyteller so he'll he'll be on there tomorrow and, and uh, but that's kind of how that started you know that uh, was because I was working for the Braves at the time as like a special assignment scout for Alex Anthopoulos the GM. Uh, and then, but then I resigned that job to do this podcast and stuff, and, and uh, that's kind of what I do now. Not bad, yeah, not bad at all. I just want to ask you quick, John, before we go. We got a couple of minutes. Everybody's got a song now, the walk up song. Uh, you come out to the mound, you got a song. What would be your walk up song these days if, if you were playing? Well, you know what they had—they had one when I was managing that when I go out and make a pitch change up there in Toronto. What was it? It was Leonard. Leonard Skinner, Simple Man, man. Oh, yeah. Simple Man, that describes me, man. I'm not too complicated. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very, very simple. Gotcha. You know who used that while he was here in New York? I don't know if he's still using it down in Texas. It was Jacob DeGrom. Is that right? Yeah, he used it coming out to warm up uh, in, in the afternoon. Yeah. Ah. Hey, he's, he just went on the DL again, huh? Yeah, he did. I mean, I mean, you, you don't want to see that happen, but we could have told the guys down in Texas that, uh, you know, you're dealing with fragile, uh, merchandise here, you know? Yeah, you know what, you know what the, you know, an arm wasn't supposed to throw that hard, man. You know, no, yeah, not, to, not supposed to go through those motions. Well, John, I tell you, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for taking your, the time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us here in New York. Uh, good luck with the book and good luck with the podcast, and we'll keep in touch with you. Hey, Billy, thank you for having me on. I heard you got Billy Pulsford coming on next. That's huh? it. You want me to uh, tell him anything? Yeah, you just uh, tell him, tell him, guys, in the minor leagues. He was, he was on his way. He was springboarding to the big leagues. And just tell him Gibbons said hello. Will do. All right. That's the great John Gibbons, ladies and gentlemen. Up next, we will indeed welcome in former big league pitcher and member of Generation K, Billy Pulsifer. Stick around, folks. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show.
All right, folks, we are back with Sports Talk New York here on WGBB in Merrick, Long Island, New York. I wanted to tell you that uh, I went out to City Field on Friday night. First of all, it was a brutal night, cold, windy, raining from just about the first pitch. It was kind of important series with the Braves for the Mets. David Peterson was on the hill. Uh, he just had a dismal performance out in San Francisco last week, and he was throwing well Friday night, R- really one pitch away from getting out of the fifth inning in question. He gave up a run, and then Matt Olson comes in, sends one soaring towards uh, the Shea Bridge out there, 450 feet away for a three-run homer. Oh, man, that's when I decided to bail, and uh, the news that the tarp is coming out uh, as I was leaving through the rotunda. And I was sitting among some Braves fan on the third base side, and when the Braves were starting to make some noise, they started in with that uh, infernal, annoying... And, excuse me, what I believe is thoroughly racist, the tomahawk chop. Now, how how Major League Baseball can demand the changing of the Indians to the Guardians, but uh, turn a blind eye to this act, which, uh, granted, it's it's the fans doing it, but the the team and the and the uh, Major League Baseball does nothing to, to uh, halt it. Uh, the, the bandwagoning Braves fans, they, they, they really didn't even develop, develop it themselves. They stole it from, I believe, the Florida State Seminoles. I mean, there's, there's Bud Light, there's Cracker Jills on sale in the stands, but MLB allows this, uh, ridiculous act to, to remain prevalent, and, and it's a travesty to me. More on this as it becomes available, folks. I will keep you posted. Our next guest. A left-hand pitcher played in Major League Baseball for the Mets, the Brewers, the Red Sox, the White Sox, and the Cardinals over six seasons. Uh, once considered a top prospect and a member of the Mets heralded Generation K, career derailed by injuries uh, requiring Tommy John, uh, had some trouble with depression, which we want to talk to him about. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight Bill Pulsifer. Bill, good evening. Good evening. It's uh, it's great to have you aboard. I would just want to tell you before we start, we had John Gibbons on before you, and he wants to send his regards. Yeah, you know, I actually saw a little thing on Twitter about you, um, about the show tonight, uh, and uh, that gave me a smile to see Gibby was going to be on too. He was actually uh, when I first signed, he was one of the instructors down in instructional league, so one of the first coaches I was ever in, encountered in professional baseball, and um, then I played briefly for him. Uh, in 97 when I was coming back from uh, from injury, and he was always a great baseball man and great, great, uh, great person. Great yeah, great oh, man, what, what, what a panic he was. We had a good time. Yeah, he's a good man. <laughs> well, I want to ask you now, you were a military brat, as they say, Bill, uh, born down in Fort Benning. Uh, you you wrote, located uh, several times before settling in Virginia, how does one get to uh, have a baseball team and heroes as a kid, as most of us root for our hometown people? Who were your team and, and your heroes when you were a kid? Well, uh, early on, um, I, I really enjoyed it because come around third grade or so, I uh, was stationed in Fort Leavenworth, my father was. So I definitely followed, and that was right around the time um, the I-80 World Series, so I followed the, the Cardinals mm-hmm. and the Royals quite closely. Um then when I moved back to the East Coast uh, in Virginia, I had uh, WGN, WOR, WTBS, and uh, Hometown Sports, HTS, which, you know, that was the uh, 
the uh, the Cubs, the Braves, and uh, the Orioles, and then obviously the New York Mets. Right. And be, being a young young guy, um, and them being very good there in the uh, mid 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 to late eighties, it's easy to uh, to kind of go in that direction of the team that's successful. So I became a Mets fan early on, and my my favorite players were obviously uh, uh, Doc and Straw, and mm-hmm. um, I've still. You know, those are still my two favorite guys of all time, and I get a chance to see Doc every year now when I go down to Mets fantasy camp, so it's pretty cool to get to spend some time with your boyhood idol yeah. uh, every November. I can imagine, yeah. It's great that you keep in touch and do the fantasy camp, Bill. That, that must be true. Well, I was lucky about four years ago to, to, to get the invite. You know, uh, Kevin Bias has been a longtime uh, coach down there, and, you know, he briefly played with the Mets. He kind of went to battle for me a little bit for a long time and uh, got to meet a, a friend of mine, Larry Goodman, um, who came in and started actually taking a little bit of pitching lessons for me in Belport at 365 Athletics. And, uh, mm-hmm. sure enough, he was, you know, was very involved with the Mets fantasy camp and a longtime camper and started to put in a good word for me. And I was lucky enough to, uh, to be able to, to become one of the, the coaches down there. And I, I enjoy that. Yeah. Enjoy that. Longtime duck skipper too, Kevin Baez. Yes, sir. Exactly. Yep. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, you well, another one of the first guys that I ever met. In, in pro baseball, when I first signed, I, I held out trying to get some more money before uh, before I signed and um, ended up going down to Instructional League. I didn't play my first summer that I got drafted, so I came came down to Instructional League in the fall, and Kevin was one of the, the first five guys on the van at, at West Palm Beach uh, Airport when, when I flew down from Virginia. And uh, he was one of the first guys I've ever met, so I've known Kevin for Shoot, 32 years now. Nice guy. Yeah, very nice guy. Now, yeah, good man. you were offered a full scholarship to Old Dominion, and you uh, let that go to sign with the Mets uh, after you were chosen in the second round in 91. Uh, what was your reasoning there, Bill? Well, I, uh, I, wanted to play, I wanted to play professional baseball since I was, you know, four years old. I used to tell my parents and friends and that, you know, I'm going to play big league baseball, I'm going to play big league baseball, and, um, you know, I got, obviously played well going through the little leagues and the Babe Ruths and the um, high school ball and that, and continue to develop and, and was blessed with the talent. And uh, obviously, when I got drafted in the second round, um, I felt like that dream was going to be able to come true. So, um, obviously, unfortunately, the guy that was drafted in the uh, the first round that year signed three days after the draft, so he kind of undercut what our money was going to be a little bit what i was kind of expecting um so i did kind of try to hold out all summer to try to negotiate and try to get a little bit extra money to start my you know start my professional life uh so i I kind of figured once i got drafted in the second round i was like thank goodness and uh i don't feel like i was really wanted to do the college thing plus the college and baseball thing and i was ready to get get right into being a professional player no argument there bill no that's uh, that's great now you had a good minor league career. Binghamton, you pitched a no-hitter. You played with Fonzie and Izzy uh, down there. Uh, you reunited with those guys a few years later in Queens. Tell us a little bit about your journey uh, through the Mets system. Well, it was a, it was a great journey. Um, that happened relatively quick, uh, uh, all things be said. You know, I was I signed it. 17 years old, didn't start playing until I was 18, and then by the time I was 21, I was playing in the major leagues. But uh, that year, in um, you know, in A ball, the year prior to winning the, we won the, we won the whole thing in '94 in the Eastern League. We fell short in the finals uh, 
in Clearwater. Uh, when we were playing was with the St. Lucie Mets, we, we lost over in Clearwater to the Phillies. So we mm-hmm. kind of felt like um, we had some unfinished business, and we had quite the talented team. There's, you know, Ordonez ended up being on that that club as well, and uh, Jeff Barry, who briefly played with the Mets as well. Um, just a very talented team. I believe we won over 90 games all all told, counting the playoffs and that, and 100, you know, 140, 150 games because you don't play the, the full 162 at the minor league level. But um, Obviously, great memories uh, coming through in, in the 1994 in, in, the, in Binghamton was one of the best summers of my life. Ended up winning a championship, throwing a no-hitter. Um, just a lot of fun, you know, a lot of great memories. We are speaking to Bill Pulsifer tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, Generation K, let's talk about that. How did you guys feel about that mon- moniker? You, Jason Isringhouse, and Paul yeah. Wilson, the, the sports writers and fans came up with that. How did you guys feel about it? Well, I never really even put much thought into the name of the, you know, of the of the group or anything like that. I was more focused on um, just <laughs> trying to get to the big leagues and uh, try to be successful, you know. And uh, yeah, I felt like you know everything that was kind of happening at that point, I'd always kind of just naively expected to be happening anyway, you know, because like I said, from the time I was four years old, I kind of felt like I was going to play Major League Baseball and nothing was going to stop me. And, um, you know, so I just felt like, okay, this is just the natural progression of the way things were, or were kind of in my vision uh, growing up, and it was just all kind of coming to fruition. So I enjoyed it, but I was naive to think that, um, you know, things were going to be all, uh, all fun, you know, all fun and dandy and all the time, you know, and it wasn't going to be a battle. I think the, the thing is, Bill, that... The Mets uh, fans are so hungry for something to go well that they yes. they enjoy things like Generation K. They enjoy the dark night for Matt Harvey, um, the Thor well, for Noah Syndergaard. You know, they just they yeah, just yeah. want something to go right. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I think that uh, unfortunately, and I actually spoke with Jay Horowitz about this not too long ago. Um, Unfortunately, the, the Yankees started winning a lot of World Series right around that time, too. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there was a lot of hype. And, uh, you know, who, who, would, who knows if we don't get hurt and all that, how things would have worked out. Um, and if the team would have been in a, in a different position at that time, who knows. But uh, obviously, yes, the Mets do want to, and especially Mets fans are looking for that. And I'm a Mets fan myself, you know, um, looking for that, uh, for the organization to get that World Series again and, to have a, uh, a vaunted pitching staff that can, can, can do it together for years. So uh, I feel for them as well. As Ed, and I'm, I'm a Mets fan myself, so I know I know how it goes. Right. It's been a rough ride, Bill. You know that. <laughs> now, <laughs> June 95, 21 years old. You take the mound at Shea against Houston. Describe your emotions when you run out there onto the mound for, for your first start and uh, tow the rubber, take your warm-ups, about to uh, unleash your first pitch in flushing. Well, obviously, dream come true. You know, growing mm-hmm. up a Mets fan, uh, dream come true. Walking out there into the big blue stadium, and uh, I got I was lucky to get there a couple of days in advance. And obviously, was in awe the first time I walked out of into the down into the dugout, and knowing that the guys that I grew up idolizing were in that same place, and just how big the stadium actually was, and how tall it was. Um, you know, awe inspiring. Uh, getting ready to pitch. Um, Obviously, again, dream come true. Uh, you're here. You made it. Not just obviously as the Mets, but obviously pitching in the major leagues as well. But I've definitely had the nerves. You know, knees knocking together. 
Uh, my first <laughs> first pitch actually cut past um, Todd Hundley's glove and went back to the backstop. So that was uh, not not the best of the the way you want to Nerves. start it. But, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and then obviously gave up five runs in the first inning. So not 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 how things you know how you had kind of envisioned or wanting things to go. But I did always say I felt like you know I came out on top that day because uh, when it was all said and done, I was able to throw seven innings uh, after giving up five in the first. And there was actually a couple of plays that uh, Brett Butler I hadn't seen him for well over fifteen years, and the first thing when I saw him, the first thing he said is I should have caught those two balls in that first inning. So I'm not putting any blame on anybody because obviously you're getting the ball hit out into the left center left center gap a couple times. But uh, I always felt like I came out on top on that day, even though I took the L because I was able to gather myself and uh, and go out and obviously threw a lot of pitches, 131 pitches. I don't uh, think that's ever going to happen again. No, not but, these uh, days. Yeah, <laughs> no, it definitely won't. But I felt like uh, you know, all right, I did, I did it. I you know, and uh, I didn't crumble. I could have usually came out in the first inning and said, man, this was terrible. But uh, to be able to finish and walk off the mound getting the last out in the seventh inning and uh, not having to have Dallas come out and take the ball from you. And, you know, I felt like, uh, you know, I had accomplished something. There's a name that uh, Bill mentions, folks, that you should Google. Brett Butler, uh, a great center fielder in, in uh, baseball, uh, tremendous leadoff hitter, wonderful bunter, and uh, just uh, a, a very solid ball player. Google that guy, played for the Mets for a couple of years. Uh, now, now, Bill, you had your trouble. You had uh, Tommy John surgery. Then uh, you're diagnosed with depression. I mean, that happens to a lot of us. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very prevalent. Uh, bring us a, a little bit into that journey that you had. No, it was um, it wasn't easy. Obviously, and I still you know deal with the anxiety and depression uh, on a semi regular basis. Sure, it's one of those things that just doesn't you know if you have it. It's there. It's always there. In, There's in, no in cure. The yeah. Wait. But um, unfortunately, I came up in a time where it was a little less understood as to what was going on, and uh, I think that they do things quite differently now. I remember watching the World Baseball Classic this year and watching Bard throw, and I just knew what was going on 100%. And sure, as it turns out, he's you know he's on the injured list right now with with uh, dealing with the anxiety and depression. Yeah. So uh, I think that they deal with it a little bit different. Uh, differently now, I um, they put me on a 30-day rehab assignment when I was coming back from after Tommy John. I had a great spring training. I didn't expect to be sent down to the minor leagues, even if it was a rehab assignment. And uh, something just something just snapped, man. I, I never I felt like you know I've always said the place where I was most comfortable in my in my life, which was out on the mound, turned into the uh, the most uncomfortable place. And uh, if you've never had it before, I always say I don't wish it on anybody, but I do wish that everybody could at least feel it once. To know what it feels like, so you can understand what's going on with somebody when they're going through, you know, anxiety and depression like mm-hmm. that, because it's all encompassing. And, and um, obviously, people end up sometimes taking their lives due to these things. So it's a, it's a very powerful thing, and uh, it's something that I think that baseball has kind of come around a little bit to trying to be in tune to those things, to where they handle things like that a little bit differently than they did, uh, let's say, in the mid late nineties. True, very true, Bill. Now, you got sent to, to Milwaukee for Mike Kincaid. How did you feel about leaving the Mets? Well, I, I, look, I wanted to, I always wanted to be a one organization guy. And, right. You know, a long career, long story career. That's kind of how I saw things. Again, naively. But, um, I felt like, okay, I'm getting another opportunity to, to go be a starting pitcher, um, there. And unfortunately, 
I pitched decent uh, the second, you know, from the trade deadline on, but unfortunately I got injured again and had to have back surgery uh, at the end of that season. So it was kind of like one of those things where it seemed like every time I got going a little bit, something would uh, would get in the way and kind of spin me back going the opposite direction again. But like I said, hey, I was playing in the major leagues, was getting an opportunity to get the ball every five days, and was looking to make the most out of it. Tell us about returning home uh, to Port St. Lucie, Bill, and uh, joining the grounds crew for the St. Lucie Mets, uh, taking that step and uh, working with those guys. Well, you know, Tommy Bowes, who was the head grounds crew guy down there for uh, for many, many, many years, uh, me and him were pretty good friends. And uh, I, my wife was telling me, you got to get a job, you got to do something. You know, uh, you can't just be sitting here feeling bad for yourself. Because at the time, I kind of retired for the first time, many times. And uh, I went up to, to Tommy and said, Tommy, what do you think? He says, I'll give you a job, but you got to promise me that from 9 o'clock to noon, you're, uh, you're over there in the minor league clubhouse. And at the time, you know, I still had a nice relationship with the, with the minor league guys over there in the, in the minor league clubhouse. And right. They afforded me the opportunity to come in and work out because Tommy said, you're not done. You know, you're not done playing, so I'll give you the job, but you've got to, uh, you got to go in there and work out and get ready to go play winter ball. So that's how it went. And, uh, listen. Sometimes you have to swallow your pride. I'm not, you know, I had an ego for long enough, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Right. And, uh, you know, I've got no shame. <laughs> it is what it is. And it's a kind of a cool story that I actually ended up making it back to the major leagues after working on, you know, the fields that I grew up on, basically, uh, the minor league complex there in St. Lucie. So it's a pretty, pretty cool story. It is a great story and a tribute to you, Bill. That is for Thank sure. You. Thank you. Bill Pulsifer with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now I want to ask you about your sons. You, you have two sons. And I do. for for those folks who, who may not know, there's Liam Hayden and Leighton Hale. And yes. their they're initials for both of them, do the math, folks. It's L, uh, LHP, left-hand pitcher. Tell us yes. about about those guys. Well, um I named, I gave them, we gave them the initials, uh, because at the time, it was kind of around that time where we were talking about the grounds crew and that, um, I wasn't sure how things were going to work out the rest of the way, and I kind of wanted to let them at least have something to know who their father was in case I did end up playing before they got old enough to, to understand. But, um, both of them, you know, won state titles with, uh, Center Merch's high school, coming through high school. Uh, Liam, my oldest, is a senior at Queens right now. They're having a, a, a tremendous season fighting for the uh, East Coast Conference title, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, ran into to some, to some injury that the team has, ran into some injury uh, bug here the last couple weeks, which kind of put a damper on things, which is terrible because a 2, 3, and 4 hitter who are all hitting well over 350 uh, are all injured right now. So they've kinda, they're trying to, you know, keep digging and, and try to do what they can with some, some of the backup guys. But he's a senior there, left-handed pitcher. He's having a good season. Um, my youngest, Leighton, I've never met anybody with worse luck, kind of, when it comes to injuries because I feel like he was a super, super talented kid and, uh, you know, middle infielder. He was a right-handed. He's right-handed. Supposed to be playing um, baseball at Central Connecticut State this year, but um, he's been through some injuries. Fractured his back three times growing up, swinging the bat, dislocated his shoulder twice. I don't oh, know. If this is this injuries. The the right handed swingers now with the left hand, the left shoulders. A, a Long Island kid, Logan O'Hop, 
little hoppy. He just went down with it. Same thing, torn labrum. Right. Yeah, that's but, right. Uh, he he, yeah, went, he went to my high school, Bill. He went to St. Okay. John the Baptist. John, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, but then, uh, so he didn't get to play. You know, won a state title as a freshman. was a starting shortstop in the state final game as a freshman. Um, and then just as, just had no luck when it comes to staying healthy. And so he didn't go to Central Connecticut because he felt like he wasn't ready because he had missed so many reps that he wanted to go down and spend a semester um down at a uh, uh, baseball academy down in Florida, and just before he was supposed to go down there, he was out in Riverhead, and uh, unfortunately somebody ran through the back of him in a car and has herniated four discs in his neck and herniated four discs in his, in his upper back. Oh, boy. Which is kind of, yeah, kind of put things on where we're not even sure if he's going to be able to play again, which is really a shame because, like I said, a very talented kid and, you just hate to see people lose their opportunity due to things that have nothing to do with their, you know, their control. True. We wish those guys the best, Bill. That Thank is you. for sure. Now, we spoke a little earlier about the Ducks with Kevin Baez. Uh, you were a starting pitcher on the on the 04 Ducks. That was the, uh, I believe, their first championship that was team. The first championship. Yeah. I pitched the championship game. You did. Yeah, you won that game, and uh, of course. Uh, how how exciting uh, was that to bring the first championship to uh, the the great fans of the Ducks? It was it was very cool, you know, because uh, they obviously and I haven't been around much uh, the last few years over to the stadium, but it was one of those things where they're you know they they pack the stadium out every night, and um, the fans are very into it. They're very into uh, you know knowing the players, and obviously uh, we had a very good year. Quite a few of us actually got signed out of there but then asked for our releases at the end of the, the season so we could go back and uh and play and i was one of those and we came back and put it all together and and won the whole thing you know it was kind of cool it was one of those things too where i gave up three runs in the first inning and then ended up going seven and didn't give up anything else and uh we scraped one out there at the end in camden who's now no longer in the league right but um you know first championship it was nice to bring that to, for them and it's another thing you know uh, no matter what level you're at, winning a championship is always special because there's people that can go their whole lives without ever winning a championship at any level. So, um, obviously, another you know great time uh, in my life and something I look back fondly on. Look, uh, looks good. Uh, it's nice to win, Bill. That's for sure. Absolutely. Now, wh- what brought you back to the island to stay out here? Well, my wife's originally from here, so I've always had some ties here. Oh, we okay. Met down in Florida, my wife Michelle is she's originally from the. Um, Lindenhurst, uh, Babylon area. Oh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm on, I'm, uh, in the Venetian Shores neighborhood. Okay, yeah, she's over near, uh, she, I was over in Pratt Street out there. Ah, right yeah. Off of, uh, yeah, right off of, uh, Montauk Highway. Right. Yeah. But, um, I was actually coaching in Winnipeg and trying to, you know, hopefully get into a coaching career. But, uh, after playing so many years of independent ball and that, I just, Financially, it was too tough. You know, you just, you really don't make money at that level. It's just kind of the opportunity. And, uh, my brother-in-law had a, uh, a job, uh, starting with a road construction company that he was working with and they needed guys. And, uh, it was kind of hard to pass, pass up because obviously not something I really wanted to be doing, but the money was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And, um, we ended up moving back up there. And now I've been in road construction since and that was in 2012. So I've been doing it for the last. You want to tell the folks, years. Bill, where, where you're instructing in case they have uh, yeah. a youngster that wants to yeah, uh, l- in, learn I'm from Bellport. a great. 
Yeah, right. I'm in Belfort at 365 Athletics. I do give, I do do the pitching lessons. Um, this time of year is not as, as heavy because once the kids start throwing, it's hard to do pitching lessons in between your outings. But uh, you know, from Thanksgiving through for the high school kids, the second week of March, I'm at uh, 365 Athletics in Belfort, and um, I get pitching lessons out of there. Wonderful. Well, Bill, it's been a pleasure. I, I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us here on Sports Talk New York. And uh, we will keep in touch with you and, and wish you all the best. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, and uh, it was a pleasure. That is Bill Pulsifer, folks, and that will do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, John Gibbons and Bill Pulsifer, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you folks for joining us. See you next on May 7th. Till then, be safe, be well. That's next week, May 7th, Brian. Be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.